It's a tiny wearable sensor and it's got a little probe that goes just under the skin and it is tracking glucose and those data points are being sent to your smartphone and so you can see a continuous reading of this internal biomarker. And each day that you are minimizing your glucose spike, your cells are seeing less insulin and so they are going to perk up to future insulin signals. And I would really love to see us to be able to clinically validate the results you're seeing on a CGM and how those correlate with these other diagnostic tests so we can start moving towards like this diagnostic. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, if you have at all been following me on Instagram, been listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, been in my Facebook groups, you know I am completely obsessed with CGMs. Wearing a CGM has truly been one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. I definitely went through quite an addiction period. If you are at all curious about your blood sugar levels, about how you respond to food, to fasting, to exercise, I cannot recommend enough that you do at least a trial run of a CGM. It provides so much valuable data, truly life-changing. And this conversation that I had with Casey, I learned so much. I finally got to dive in so deep into blood glucose regulation, what different numbers actually mean, a lot of the misconceptions. I just am so grateful for this conversation and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. Levels is actually currently on a huge wait list. We're talking in the thousands and thousands and thousands, but there's no wait list for you guys. Pretty awesome. So if after listening to this conversation, you'd like to get a CGM for yourself, no wait list. You can get it now. You just have to use the link melanieavalon.com slash levels CGM and use the coupon code melanieavalon. That will let you skip the wait list Get that device and you will be good to go. If you're nervous about putting on a CGM, definitely check out my Instagram. I've done a lot of videos about putting it on. I promise it doesn't hurt. It looks really intimidating. I was really intimidated. Friends, it's a breeze. You don't even feel it. It is so easy to do. We do dive deep into a lot of science in this episode, so no worries. There will be a full transcript in the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash levels. There will be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Casey Means. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a topic that you guys have been begging, begging to have a show on. So here we are. And it comes with my personal experience for the past two weeks of trying out this device. So I really feel like in the whole biohacking world, there's something that's becoming increasingly more popular every single day. And it's something that's been around for a while, but not really available to the general public. And that is continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. And we will, we're going to obviously dive deep into what that actually is, but I have been wearing one for the past two weeks, learning a ton 
ton about myself. You really you can learn so much about how you react to foods, how you react to fasting, to sleep. There's just so much to learn here, so much potential. And what's really exciting is that there are companies like Levels, who I am here today with the co-founder and the chief medical officer of, Dr. Casey Means. There are companies like Levels that are, like I said, making CGMs available to the general public and integrating apps so that you can really interpret the data that you have and you know really make it really beneficial to your life. So I am so excited. I have so many questions, but Dr. Means, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. I'm thrilled to be here. So I'll let listeners know a little bit about you. So like I said, you are the chief medical officer and the co-founder of the company Levels that we're going to talk all about, but you are a Stanford-trained physician. This is so exciting. You're the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. That's when you know you're a biohacker, when you get really excited by like journal people. But you are an award-winning biomedical researcher. You've had a lot of other past research positions at the NIH, at Stanford School of Medicine, and at NYU. Your work has been all over the place. Forbes, Entrepreneur, The Hill, Metabolism, Endocrine Today. You've even worked with Dr. Michael Greger, who listeners might be pretty familiar with. He wrote how not to die. And he has nutrition video series, which I've actually watched quite a few of those when I was doing a a nutrition certification program. But in any case, that's a little bit about you, but to start things off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your actual personal story? And I'm dying to know what brought you where you are today with CGMs and with levels and all of that. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. So my background actually starts now it's in digital health and metabolic optimization, but it actually started in surgery. So I, I trained as a medical doctor. I was at Stanford for medical school and then came up to Oregon for my residency training in head and neck surgery, ear, nose, and throat. And it was there that I was treating a lot of conditions that were fundamentally inflammatory in nature. So a lot of, you know, things that end in itis, like sinusitis, thyroiditis, things that are fundamentally inflammation and the immune system being rubbed up and and upregulated. And we treat a lot of these conditions with steroids, which tamp down the immune response. And then of course, antibiotics. And then really late stage, we'll, we'll turn to surgery. And after about four and a half, five years in this, in this world of ENT, I became really interested in stepping back and saying, you know, why, why is there so much chronic inflammation? Why are people dealing with these chronic inflammatory disorders that you know, seem to persist and come back even after rounds of steroids and antibiotics and even surgery, a lot of repeat surgeries you see in the hospital. And so, so that really led me on a journey towards trying to understand the root causes of chronic inflammation. And, you know, one of the key ones there is metabolic dysfunction and how we handle blood sugar and how efficiently we're processing various substrates into energy in the body. And so really became interested in how to, you know, metabolically optimize people. I saw in my patients that so many of them that were dealing with chronic ENT disorders were also dealing with other issues of metabolism. So things like obesity and diabetes and, and many of the other, you know, sequelae that, that are associated with insulin resistance and poor glucose control, you know, things like liver disease, chronic kidney disease, depression, anxiety, you know, brain fog, there's so many things that are linked to metabolic disease. And I was seeing a lot of this in my patient base, but also noticing how people who had poor metabolic function did worse after surgery. You know, wounds don't heal as well when your blood sugar is not controlled and you just have trouble 
bouncing back. And so it was very important to me to address this and think about this more deeply. And, you know, really what it comes down to is improving, moving the needle on metabolic function really has to do with behavior change. It has to do with changing the hundreds of micro decisions we're making every day on how we eat and when we eat and how we respond to stress and how much we're sleeping and how much we're moving. And those are all choices we're making every day. And, you know, we really don't have a lot of time in our 15 minute visits with patients to like really get deep into this and be really, I think, effective agents of behavior change in the standard practice of medicine as it is now. And so I just became just laser focused and fascinated on how could we leverage other tools to really scale behavior change in regards to metabolic health? And how can we use our, our digital tools, our phones, wearables, things like that to really move the needle on this on this part of this aspect of health that's so fundamental towards of all aspects of our health and well-being? And so that, that got me really interested in, in that topic and ultimately drove me to start Levels which does just this. It's a program to help individuals understand and improve their metabolic health rapidly. I love all of this so much. Yeah. I think especially like with metabolic health and blood sugar, for example, my audience, you know, audiences in general, people in general are pretty familiar with, you know, the problems with blood sugar regulation issues. But I think a lot of people, it caps out at thinking it's just about like weight loss or hunger or appetite but it goes so far beyond that and affects so many things. And like, I know for me, when I first changed my diet and stopped the standard American diet was when I went low carb and I wasn't testing my blood sugar at the time, but the benefits that I experienced seemingly on my blood sugar levels and having that regulated was so huge. And I've made a lot of like tweaks since then. And more recently have been, I don't know, I've been feeling like I've been struggling to get my blood sugar quite where I like it. And getting the CGM was so validating because it was kind of like showing a lot of things that I was sort of suspecting about myself, like kind of suspecting that my fasting blood sugar might be higher than I like. I was feeling intuitively that I was getting like reactive hypoglycemic responses after meals, which is, you know, something that we can talk about. But yeah, that, that was a whole windy way of saying that I think everything that you're doing is, is so incredible. So for listeners, so the CGM until really recently, because when did you found levels? Like when did you start that? We started the company last summer. So it's been around for just over a year. It's really recent that this is like becoming a thing where you know, people can have access to this device. So I guess just to start with like what a CGM is, because it's often prescribed for diabetics. What, what is it? I can tell listeners about the experience of putting it on, which was not nearly as scary as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. What is it? Why is it prescribed for diabetics normally? And how is it now being made available to us? Yes. So this technology of continuous glucose monitors, otherwise known as CGMs, this has actually been around for like over 10 years. And like you said, this is a technology that has been traditionally used for individuals with diabetes. This is a prescription only FDA approved advice for the treatment of type one and type two diabetes. And what it is, is it's a tiny wearable sensor. You can kind of think of it like Fitbit for glucose. So you're sticking this quarter sized sensor on the back of your arm 
and it's got a tiny little four millimeter hair-like probe that goes just under the skin painlessly. And it is tracking glucose for anywhere from between every five and 15 minutes. And those data points are being sent to your smartphone. And so you can see a continuous reading of this internal biomarker, which is fascinating, you know, because for sleep monitors, activity monitors, stress monitors that are looking at heart rate and HRV and things like that. These are not internal biomarkers, not, you know, things inside our body. These are more just transmitted through the skin. So this is an internal biomarker that you're sensing painlessly 24 hours a day and getting this super rich data stream. For individuals with diabetes, this was a total game changer because prior to that, they were having to prick their fingers, you know, anywhere from one to four or five times a day to see what was happening to their glucose after meals and really to manage medications, particularly insulin and sort of track progression of the disease. But you can imagine the difference between four data points a day and, you know, hundreds of data points a day. It's just monumental. And then taking away that fingerprint component, which is not fun and, and painful. So it's, it's bloodless and it's just, you know, a huge acceleration of the technology. So, you know, then, you know, you bring it into sort of our current culture where people are really interested, even people without diabetes in understanding their metabolism. And you see this with the keto movement and you see this with, you know, non-diabetic individuals starting to prick their fingers so that they can better understand sort of where they sit on the, on the metabolic health spectrum. Because we know that so much now that the way glucose impacts insulin and other hormones in the body and the way other hormones like cortisol affects our glucose, all these things are so interrelated. And if we stabilize and manage our glucose, we have this huge opportunity to really just up-level our, our current lives in so many ways, you know, improve our energy, improve our mood, improve our cognitive performance, our memory, our athletic endurance, and of course, you know, help prevent this movement towards so many of the chronic conditions down the roads that are associated with dysregulated blood sugar. So, so people have been interested in this and, and, you know, we certainly see that with the movement towards these types of low carb diets, but now, you know, there's this technology that tracks glucose in real time, can tell people exactly where they stand every single day in terms of metabolic health. And really it's just about getting that technology to a wider market and then building tools that help people health-seeking individuals to interpret that data and understand the data stream. You know, it's not, it's not just about food in terms of what impacts glucose levels. It's food, it's food combinations, it's food timing, it's stress, it's sleep, it's exercise. All these things directly feed in to our glucose curve. So if we want to keep that curve flat and stable for optimal health, then having software that really integrates data and helps us understand where we're at and how to make, you know, actionable changes and, and sort of close the loop between these decisions and actions and what we're, what's happening to our health in real time. That's just a game changer. And so for, for this wider population, this is really completing that health stack. You know, we've had stress, sleep, activity monitors, but we've never had a real-time wearable sensor that closes the loop on nutrition that has not existed. And, you know, the best we've had is like maybe six times from now, you'll get a fasting glucose level or you'll get a cholesterol check, or maybe you'll weigh yourself the next morning, but there's not really like a, a closed loop between those outcomes and like the exact thing that you did to cause them. And so now we do have that, we have that really closed loop biofeedback for nutrition. And so, so it's just a super exciting time to bring this technology to a, to a much wider population and pair it with intelligent software that really parses out the drivers of glucose control and then helps people move in the right direction and consistently. 
So I think listeners can now see why I am so excited by all of this. I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, and my co-host on that show, Jen Stevens, she went through using a CGM, and it was for the PREDICT2 study, I believe. So they sent her one for that, which was, I think, a gut microbiome-related study. In any case, the thing – like we both (laughs) – I feel like we're both the CGM fangirls, like half the episode now we just talk about our CGMs. But I think like one of the biggest like epiphanies from all of this is seeing your your pattern throughout the day is just, and throughout the evening, like you said, 24 seven is just really, really incredible because I've always been, you know, testing myself. And so in the past I would, I pretty much check my blood sugar every night, like once in the evening and it would usually be around the same. Wearing the CGM, I've realized even if it's smaller fluctuations, just how much like my blood sugar does fluctuate, even if it's within a range. And what I think is so interesting about that is like it made me realize like if I'm getting blood tests and you know my number that I get from that blood test, it could be substantially different if I had gone. I think even like five minutes later, like there are just so many factors and. It's just really made me realize how much more there is to know and how much like just having one marker for like blood sugar tells you, I mean, it tells you that one marker at that one moment, but it doesn't tell you that much, honestly. So for listeners, because I want to give them like an idea of like what the experience is like. So levels, you guys don't actually make the CGM, correct? You're using the Freestyle Libre? That's correct. Yeah, we're using off-the-shelf hardware and our real core competency is the software overlay. So helping people understand the data stream and we are integrated with Abbott and the Freestyle Libre, which is one of the three pieces of hardware on the market. There's three different types of CGMs and soon to have a Dexcom offering as well. How are you making this prescription accessible? Like, Does anybody qualify? Can anybody get it? What is the process like to get the CGM? Yeah. So currently we are a general health and wellness product. So we're not a medical product. We're not treating any diseases or conditions. We're really just helping people understand their current level of health and and optimize that. So this is really a a product targeted towards health-seeking individuals without clinical conditions who want to optimize their metabolic fitness. So the way that works for the, you know, levels customer is that they would purchase this one month metabolic awareness experience. So it's one month of really experimenting and testing lots of foods you love and understanding how to optimize to get that lower and flat glucose curve. And so the first thing that happens is you're connected with a telemedicine physician in our network who evaluates the person for a CGM. And this is actually a very, very quick process. Uh, you know, it, It's basically filling out a short questionnaire that the doctor in your state then reviews. And if a person, if it's safe for them to get a CGM, a CGM is then shipped from our partner pharmacy to the person's house, two sensors. Each sensor lasts on the arm for 14 days. So together, those two sensors make a 28-day you know, month-long experience. And then access to the Levels app, which interprets the data and helps make it really engaging and, and understandable. So that's that's how the, the prescription products are made accessible to this population is through our telemedicine network and, and shipment of these sensors from a, from a pharmacy to their homes. I check my blood sugar a lot with like finger pricks. I will do like subcutaneous injections of, you know, crazy things like glutathione. Like I'm not scared to like (laughs) stick things into my body. That said, like, it just looks intimidating, the applicator to put it on, but oh my goodness, you don't, you don't feel it at all. 
I was like very much surprised. So for listeners, it's not painful to put it on, even though it's it's inserting it right beneath the skin, the sensor. Yeah, it's a four millimeter sensor that's only it's less than a millimeter in width. So it's like almost like a, you know, piece of dental floss that's, you know, four millimeters in length. So it's very, very tiny, super flexible, but you know, just like you, I had the exact, the very first time I put one on, you know, a year and a half ago, I've been wearing one now for for that entire time, but it, it's really intimidating because you see this thing and you're like, wait, I'm about to, in, you know, impale this thing into my arm. Is there going to be a needle in the arm? Like, is it going to be rigid? Can I lay on it? I mean, so many questions. I think I watched probably like 15 YouTube videos to just like, if people applying it to see what it was going to be like. And then of course, just like you, I, I finally did it. I think I had my Bose headphones on blasting music while I was doing it just to like gear up, you know, and then I did it and I just started laughing because I was like, I could not feel it. And pretty much no one feels it. A lot of people actually don't even think that the applicator has functioned properly because they didn't feel anything happen. It's just, it's so quick. And then once it's on, it just sort of, you know, you just kind of forget it's there. And so, and then I think it's also really reassuring when people take the sensor off after two weeks, because then they can actually see that little probe that was inside for the two weeks and feel it and just realize how like hair-like and flexible it is. Like you could just lay on it and it's just going to bend. It's just, you know, it's so flexible. So it's really, really reassuring. And I've created some of our sensor application videos and make sure to really press on the probe, a used sensor and show people how flexible it is. Cause it, I think it takes away some of the fear factor there, but yeah. Did you, have you taken yours off your first one off yet? And no, I have like two days left, so I'm really excited <laughs> to see it. But Jen said that my co-host, she was like, it was really exciting to take it off and see what it looked like on the flip side. <laughs> but yeah, so no need for any fear surrounding it. So as far as what it's actually measuring, so it's not actually testing your blood, correct? What is it measuring? That's correct. Yeah. It's measuring interstitial fluid, which is the fluid in between your cells. So you can imagine under the skin, there's like all your skin cells and in between each of those cells, there's fluid, which is the interstitium and glucose basically leaks out of blood vessels into that tissue as glucose travels to the cells to be taken up. And that is the fluid that glucose is being tested from. So because of that, there is said to be basically a slight delay between a blood reading and a interstitial fluid reading that can be about 10 to 15 minutes as that blood as that glucose from the blood diffuses into the interstitial fluid and yeah i've certainly found that to be true you know on some days but then other days i'll eat something and within 5 to 10 minutes i'll see my glucose starting to rise on my sensor so i think I'll, it, it sometimes happens really really quickly but yeah there's a little bit of a delay getting into the interstitial fluid but that's yeah not going into your blood just going sort of in the general tissue okay so the interstitial fluid is it still on the outside of the cell yes so like the insulin receptors are they on the cell so like the leaking from the blood to the interstitial fluid is that at all dependent on insulin or does that happen regardless of everything yeah, that's just going to happen regardless. So the insulin receptors are sitting on the surface of these cells and, you know, blood glucose is going to come out of the bloodstream into the interstitium and then it's going to be insulin binds to a cell that's going to allow the glucose transporters called glute channels to go to the surface of the cell and then soak up that glucose from the interstitium. So it's measuring in that area. So really you can just imagine that what's happening in the blood is reflecting you know, almost identically in the interstitium. Those are pretty just just with a time delay. Would that also mean that it might be slightly less accurate 
when you're at a really low blood sugar level because there's less glucose to be leaking into the interstitial fluid? I know that's really granular, but no, it's a good question. And actually the sensors are less accurate at lower values. So it's actually like a perfect question. There is a specific range for which the sensors are the most accurate. And that's about like 100 to 200. So really a range that is going to be really relevant to the diabetic population. And then as you get down to glucose values between 60 and 80 or so, things are a little bit less accurate compared to blood, which may very well have to do with the lower concentration in the fluid. There's actually an enzyme protein that is stuck onto the sensor. This is what actually happens is that there's a chemical reaction between the glucose and then this enzyme that's on the sensor called glucose oxidase. And the glucose oxidase does a chemical reaction with glucose that converts glucose into a secondary byproduct. And in that process, it creates basically an electrochemical charge that's picked up by the sensor and transmitted as the glucose level. So so you can imagine how at lower values, that chemical reaction may not be happening as, as robustly, but it's still very, very accurate. But you do see a little bit of a decline at the very, very low values. That's so interesting. Is there a, um, a saturation level that happens in the interstitial fluid or does that happen in the blood as well? Like where it just, there can't be any more. That's an interesting question. You know, the glucose can get very, 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 very high. So there are people who have glucose readings in the three, four, five hundreds. The, the sensor will not pick up that high, but in terms of just like biologic pl- plausibility, you, you can have glucose levels that high. And sometimes you'll see that in patients who are coming in with like diabetic ketoacidosis, but that is certainly an area, a range that we never, ever want to get in. We want to stay much, much lower than that. And, you know, one thing I'll say just accuracy wise, if you look at the Freestyle Libre, they, they've done tons of research on basically comparing glucose at all values to the blood reference range. And they've found that the mean agreement with reference tests for Freestyle Libre compared to blood, so like the difference between blood and the Libre readings on average is about 9% on average. So there may be an up to sort of 9% on average difference between what you'd see in the blood and what you'd see read by the Freestyle Libre. Interestingly, this is actually very similar to other consumer wearable devices like Fitbit, which is also in the range of about 9%. And so that's, you know, fairly accurate. And given that this product, especially in the non-diabetic population, it's not intended for treatment decisions. Like we're really looking at trends and, and sort of the delta between a before and after of an intervention and seeing what happens. And so certainly that's a, that's a range that we feel really comfortable with as still being very useful for someone using it. And how does that compare to pricking yourself and then also like a lab draw? In the research that was done, that's reported that you know, the research that basically had to be done for freestyle libraries to be approved by the FDA, this is looking at a lab draw. So like a, a blood draw in, in the vein compared to the freestyle libre. And then for the finger prick, that's going to sort of also vary depending on the, the finger prick monitor that you're using. So these home monitors also have their own degree of variability between a lab test that's done in a lab versus the finger prick. So that one, I, it's hard to know exactly what the, the difference is going to be between the Libre and your home finger stick glucometer, because each one is a little bit different, you know, whether you're using OneDrop or, you know, Keto Mojo or any of these companies. So Yeah. When I've been using it, I've been checking it against, well, I had a, a Bayer and then I just got the brand new Keto Mojo. So I was like testing everything all together and they were all typically around within like 10 
I should know what it's measured in. 10. Oh, milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 10 milligrams per deciliter. I always just use like numbers. A really quick random rabbit hole question. Since it's using the enzyme in the sensor to detect the level of glucose, is that why the sensors only last two weeks? Is it because of something like in the sensor not quote expiring or is it there's just a two week time limit? Two reasons, actually. So one is what you just said, which is the enzyme. A big part of making bio wearables, like internal sensors that measure lab values like in real time that you're wearing, is stability of the enzymes used to test these things. So enzymes can be very, very fragile and basically just it, it won't work. And that's why we aren't seeing you know a ton of bio wearables on the market that are testing, basically doing lab tests at home. And a lot of it has to do with enzyme stability. Glucose oxidase just happens to be this like brilliant enzyme that's really stable. So we can do it for two weeks. But yes, that, that may decline over time. But the second thing is actually your body's reaction to the sensor. And so you know, this is a foreign object under the skin. So over time, you also could develop sort of an immune response to that and potentially create, you know, theoretically like a capsule around it inside or like, you know, create inflammatory tissue around it. So the two weeks is just sort of this perfect amount of time where you're you're not really mounting an immune response to it. In, in the vast majority of people, the glucose oxidase is stable and it's going to stay really accurate. Yeah. So right now, the two main sensors on the market, Dexcom and Freestyle Libre, Dexcom is a 10-day sensor and the Freestyle Libre is 14. So that's sort of right around the sweet spot. And, you know, certainly longer sensors, we're really hopeful that these will will come online to just sort of like ease the use of this. So like taking it out and then putting it in another location, is it kind of like starting afresh? Yeah, that's what I tend tend to recommend is kind of do it, you know, at least like a centimeter off from your last sensor or switch arms to me. And this is really, I don't have like evidence for this, but I just, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Like give the, give the tissue on one arm some time to just like, you know, heal and forget that this ever happened and then do it on the other arm for the second sensor. But if you prefer one arm, like if it's easier to scan your sensor with your phone on your left arm, if you're right-handed, I, I would just probably recommend moving like a centimeter down from your, your prior insertion so that the probe is in just a slightly different area. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support 
support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. And for listeners, so like we said, it's a really small sensor, but then for like the levels, there's a patch that you can put over it. And it actually made me really happy because this is crazy, but in order to get rid of decision fatigue, I tend to like, I have like, I have like five copies of like the same outfit that I wear like every single day and it's black with a white logo. And the the cover for the CGM with levels was black and white. And I was like, this is perfect matches my outfit every single day. <laughs> Super random. One more question about accuracy while we're we're talking about that. I was talking with Tom at your company about the accuracy because I I noticed at night that I tend to eat pretty late, which may or may not be ideal, but I do and I've always like I said sort of felt like I was getting reactive hypoglycemia and I definitely saw that reflected in the CGM data. But I also noticed a few nights that it would drop like ridiculously low, like uh, like 40s. And I was like, that seems like a little bit low. But I was talking with Tom and he was saying that if you like lay on the sensor while you're sleeping, that like be cutting off circulation, which could be a problem. And he was also saying that there haven't been a lot of studies actually on like glucose levels all throughout the night. So we don't even really know what might be normal for nighttime levels. So if people do have it, have you seen people experience dips in general at night? And could it possibly be like from laying on the sensor or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and definitely one that we get a lot because people get very alarmed by seeing like values in the 40s or 50s or 30s, you know. So there's three things I would say. So the first is what what Tom mentioned, which is there is this very well-established phenomenon called pressure-induced sensor error. And quite a few publications on this where basically if you lay on the sensor and put your full body weight on it, which many of us side sleepers are going to do, that can create complete error in the sensor. So there's been studies where people have been wearing these in hospitals and a research assistant will basically like, they'll have video cameras on the patient and then see when their glucose goes low. And it tends to correlate really identically with when they rolled on their side. So they'll monitor the videos and the glucose response and they've seen a correlation with that. And then I believe double checked it with like an actual lab draw at that time. And it's not actually that low. So really, really big lows. It's often or likely, I think, going to be the pressure-induced sensor error. But the second thing to know is that 
um, glucose does actually go lower during sleep. So during REM sleep in particular, we tend to have glucose levels that are about 5% lower than in other sleep stages. So there may be just natural dips that we're seeing in glucose. And the third thing is that, like Tom mentioned, like we don't exactly know what's normal for a healthy person at night because, you know, first of all, we haven't really cared that much about glucose levels in, in non-diabetic individuals traditionally. Like we, we're sort of a system that really focuses on these things like once the disease has emerged. So there's just not a ton of data looking at what over 24 hours is the normal glucose levels for a non-diabetic individual. And there's about six or seven papers that have looked at that, but it's not like an abundance of research and would be happy to talk a little bit about what those, those papers found. But specifically in terms of lows, something that's been seen is that we may spend anywhere from like five to 10% of our day, like below values of 70 milligrams per deciliter, which would be traditionally called hypoglycemic. But in these large populations of healthy people, it seems like they're spending you know, many, many minutes, if not hours a day, like dipping below. And so often, you know, asymptomatically without symptoms of hypoglycemia. So it may be somewhat normal that we kind of, you know, will intermittently dip into the sixties or whatnot. So that, that might be totally, totally normal, but certainly as more non-diabetic healthy individuals wear these overnight, we'll have much, much more information about what is, you know, normal. And then very last thing is, you know, what you're eating late at night may have a really big impact on the the curvature and the shape of the glucose line overnight. So, you know, people who are eating a high carbohydrate meal late at night are going to have the downstream insulin response of that and, you know, potentially could get into a situation where, you know, they have this big insulin surge and then a big dip in their glucose because and leading to reactive hypoglycemia. And then that could lead to sort of this little bouncing throughout the night of sort of like a little bit of hypoglycemia and then recovering and then back and forth. And so, you know, certainly not eating high carbohydrate meals or more specifically not eating foods that for your particular body are going to cause a glucose elevation because that's going to be different in each person. That's a good way to kind of keep glucose levels a little bit more stable overnight. What's more, people who have glucose spikes at night tend to sleep more poorly. So it can cause you to be sleep hotter. If you have a glucose spike at night, it changes thermoregulation. And we know that people who sleep hotter tend to sleep worse. And it can also, it's been associated with just general insomnia. So yeah, so keeping the glucose spike really minimized towards the end of the day, I think is a really super low hanging fruit for getting the best sleep sleep possible. So yeah, so those are some of the reasons for the the lows potentially at night and some, some, you know, ways to potentially mitigate that. That ties into another just huge foundational thing to talk about, which we talked about how it's measured in milligrams per deciliter for blood glucose. So what is a healthy range? You just mentioned that technically going below 70 is hypoglycemia, but like during the day, you know, some people eat, meals and people snack. A lot of my listeners practice intermittent fasting. So they have, you know, some sort of fasting period during the day. What is a good range and what qualifies as a spike? And like, what do we want to see? And what do we, what do we not want to see? And (laughs) what should it look like? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just backing up for people, just, you know, the part of the reason we don't want these like glucose spikes is because high glucose can cause just a number of things in the body that we just sort of don't, don't want. So the first is that it can generate inflammation. Like I was talking about in the very beginning, like a big glucose spike can tell your body that like 
something's off, something's a little wrong, like, and cause you to up, upregulate immune chemicals like cytokines, TNF alpha, CRP, interleukin 6, things like this. So we don't want that. It can also cause oxidative stress. So create free radicals in the body that are, it can be damaging. And it can also cause glycation. So when blood glucose concentrations are high, glucose can stick to proteins and other structures in the body and cause dysfunction. Glycation is a process that is sometimes called like when the body becomes like, you know, almost like caramelized, like it's literally changing the proteins and it's just not, not a good thing. So we don't, we don't want glycation, oxidative stress or inflammation. And then of course, glucose spikes are going to cause corresponding insulin spikes and the higher glucose spike, most likely the higher the insulin spike and insulin spiking frequently. We really don't want, because what happens is when that occurs over and over and over again, and insulin is, you know, required to get the glucose shuttled into the cells, our body becomes a little bit tired of that and becomes resistant to that insulin signal. And the body then has to actually make more insulin to get the same amount of glucose into the cells. So now you've got higher insulin, higher glucose, and this process of insulin resistance is, you know, fundamentally the root of so many medical conditions that we see today. And also is a big problem with weight loss and obesity, because when insulin is high, it's a signal to the body that glucose is around. We've got this ready source of energy. We don't need to use other sources of energy. And of course that means we don't need to use fat for energy. So insulin is a direct block on fat oxidation. So you can imagine if you're trying to lose weight, or if you're trying to have a lot of endurance with a workout and just really want to be tapping into fat oxidation, insulin being high, big problem. So those are just sort of like five of the reasons why we don't want glucose spikes to sort of set the stage for then like what, where should we be aiming? So the short answer is that for non-diabetic individuals, we don't exactly know where people should be shooting for, for optimal glucose levels. And this is interesting because, you know, Right now, all we've got is sort of some criteria that are put out by like the American Diabetes Association that say, you know, if you're above this range of glucose, you're in the pre-diabetic or diabetic categories. And if you're below, you're non-diabetic. But that actually doesn't tell us what's best for health. So if you just looked at that criteria, what we would know is that we want our fasting glucose first thing in the morning to be less than 100 to be considered non-diabetic. If it's between 100 and 125, you're pre-diabetic. And if it's 126 or above, you're considered diabetic. There's another test called the oral glucose tolerance test, which is where individuals will chug 75 grams of glucose in this like standardized drink called glucola. And then they'll have their blood sugar measured at various intervals two hours after that drink. And if your glucose is below 140 milligrams per deciliter after that drink two hours afterwards, you're considered non-diabetic. If it's above 200, you're considered diabetic. And if it's between 140 and 200, that's pre-diabetes. So from that sort of standardized clinical information, we'd say, okay, well, we should shoot for a fasting morning glucose below hundred, and we should plan to be less than 140 after meals. But I personally think this is much too, too lenient and doesn't really tell us where we really ought to be for like best health and avoidance of future disease. And so then you have to turn to sort of some more nuanced literature. So these are the studies where they've put CGMs on healthy populations and just looked at 24-hour patterns. And what you see in that research is that people, healthy people without diabetes will with CGMs on will typically spend about 92% of their day between a glucose values of 70 and 120. So that sort of starts tightening up the range a little bit that likely we want to be between about 70 and 120. So 
you know, for levels customers, this is really what we encourage people to shoot for. Like, don't just shoot for below 140 after meals. Like probably we should be shooting for more like 70 to 120 for fasting glucose. There's been some really interesting research sort of breaking down this normal range of less than hundred milligrams per deciliter fasting glucose being normal. And what you actually find is that people in the lower range of normal do much better than the people in the higher range of normal. So people who have fasting glucoses between really about 70 and 85 have much lower risk for future diabetes, future heart disease, other health conditions than people whose fasting glucose is between 85 and 100, which is also considered normal by our standard criteria. But actually you start seeing this, you know, very steep slope of the line of increased risk of future disease. So so we also encourage people to really think about tightening up their fasting glucose parameters and really shooting between about 70 and 85, not just 70 to 100. So summing that all up, we should probably be spending the vast majority of our day between a fairly tight range of 70 to 120 when we wake up in the morning, seeing our glucose between 70 and 85. And, you know, really ideally, I would say after a meal, we don't want to see our glucose go up more than about 15 points. So kind of, you know, a little gentle rise and then back down. But what, you know, a lot of people find when they start checking their glucose is that some of their favorite foods might spike their glucose 80 points, 100 points. Like, We've seen people eat normal oatmeal and their glucose goes up literally 80 to 100 points. Or, you know, our CEO had a Chick-fil-A sandwich and a soda and his blood glucose went up to like 210. So there are lots of foods that we just consider are quote unquote normal that don't even keep us remotely in that range that I'm talking about. So what is next is to, now that we are thinking more about metabolic health for the, for the general population, we need to be doing more research to understand what ranges are associated with best current physical and future current physical performance. And then of course, risk for future disease. And I would guess that we're going to see that it's these tighter ranges that we should shoot for. This is so fascinating. Yeah. Intuitively, that's how I've always felt. Like I've always felt like blood sugar in like the seventies is when I feel good. And I've been suspecting that it's like been creeping up still not that high, but like the eighties and 90s, but I just feel better on the lower side of that. A few different things you touched on that I just have to ask you about really quickly. Okay. One is actually not really blood sugar related, but I'm just dying to ask you. You mentioned CRP and that's for listeners at C-reactive protein. If it's really low, can you still be in an inflamed state? That's a great question. And I think the answer is, you know, yes, like inflammation is a, is a very complex set of pathways and CRP is just one one snapshot of looking at that. And so, you know, it is a very, very, very good snapshot, but I think it's, it's possible that you could have, you know, other inflammatory processes going on without the CRP necessarily being elevated, but we just don't test a lot of the other inflammatory cytokines that are, that are directly related to health, especially, you know, things like IL-6, IL-11, TNF-alpha, some, you know, really a longevity focused doctors are testing these things, you know, certainly getting that sort of like broader panel. If it's something you're really interested in might be, might be interesting to do, but by and large, if CRP is really low, that's a great thing. It's definitely associated with better, you know, cardiac outcomes and, and we want it to be lower, but theoretically, yes, I think it's possible. It could be low and there could be other inflammatory pathways that are, you know, still perturbed, but, but I don't know that for sure. 
Yeah, it's a super random question. It's just because I'll feel this state of inflammation going on, but whenever I test my CRP, it's ridiculously low. It's like zero or like 0.1. I'm like, huh, I'm so confused. <laughs> I feel inflamed. Okay, some other questions that you touched on about blood glucose levels and things like that. So glycation, a lot of people on low-carb diets, maybe in carnivore diets, I feel like I see a lot of reports of people having higher blood sugar levels, even while being, you know, potentially even severely low carb. Can the negative effects of glycation occur on a carb-free diet if blood sugar levels are still high? Yeah. So if blood sugar levels in the blood are high, like glycation can occur because really it's like how much glucose is in the bloodstream and if that's able to then stick to things in the body. So if it's high in the blood, it can glycate things. So at, at the levels that people might be talking about on the carnivore diet, they still might be like fairly low glucose levels, like 90s, 100s, and that might be higher than what they want to see. I'm not sure what levels they're they're necessarily referring to, but I'd assume they're kind of still fairly fairly low. Certainly glycation is going to happen at the much higher glucose levels. And it's I imagine is going to be really a linear increase from the lower levels to the higher levels in terms of like glucose going up and how much glycation happens. So, but yeah, you know, if it's in, if it's in the blood, it can, it can do some of these deleterious things. Yeah, that makes sense. And then also while we're still in the low carb world, you know, people often think that the most insulogenic things are carbs, but I think like meat and protein can release a substantial amount of insulin, even if it's countered by glucagon, but can a person get insulin resistance from just releasing a lot of insulin, even if the insulin's not shuttling blood sugar necessarily into cells? Like, can that still create that insulin resistance problem? And I know that's also diving into the world of like physiological insulin resistance that a lot of people say might happen on lower carb diets. Yeah. So that whole world of insulin and low carb diets, and oftentimes people go on low carb diets and they feel like they can't quite bring back carbs or they can't tolerate carbs the way they used to. And, and we can, talk more about how maybe people can practically, you know, use a CGM and might learn more about themselves with all of this. But, but what are your thoughts on all that, on all the issues that can go awry with insulin? Yeah. So foundationally, you know, we want to be really like optimally insulin sensitive and keep our insulin levels like low, low insulin levels are, you know, where we want to be. And So this is not a lab test that we are often checking in standard practice, unfortunately, but I would really highly recommend that people push their doctors to get a fasting insulin level because it can give you so, so, so much information. You know, I typically like to see people in like a range of two to two to six or so, which is quite low, but you can have people out there who have normal glucose levels in the quote unquote, normal glucose level in the blood. They don't meet criteria for prediabetes and diabetes, but have insulin levels, you know, up in the twenties and thirties fasting. And so, you know, that's a, someone with a, a fasting glucose of 85 who has a insulin level of two is very different from someone who has a fasting glucose of 85, who has a insul- fasting insulin of 25. Because that person with the fasting insulin of 25, you know, their body appears to be, you know, pumping out so much more insulin to keep that glucose level at 85 than the other person, which means likely they have gone down the pathway of insulin resistance and their cell just needs so much more to drive that glucose in. And that's not 
not a state that we want. And you know what we really focus on at levels is improving metabolic fitness, which we we like to think about it like going to the gym. You know, it's like you put in your reps to get stronger at the gym, and you have to put in your reps to get more metabolically fit. And how do you put in the reps? Well, you decrease your glucose spikes day after day. And each day that you are minimizing your glucose spikes, you are your cells are seeing less insulin. And so they are going to perk up to future insulin signals. And so your body is going to have to produce basically less of it to get the same amount of sort of bang for your buck and get the glucose in. So each day that we're, we're keeping those spikes minimized, we are letting the cells hear the signal of insulin more loudly and, and ultimately regain our insulin sensitivity. And, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that is going to potentially take weeks and months to, you know, really, really get those pathways back on track. So, yeah. So, so, you know, long story short, you know, insulin being lower is, is where we want to be. Insulin affects every cell in the body in lots of different ways and drives a lot of disease processes that we are very, very well established. So like you mentioned, there's other things other than glucose that can increase insulin. So specifically sort of ranking them, glucose and carbohydrates are going to be the most insulogenic. They're going to produce the largest and quickest spike in insulin followed by protein, which can also increase insulin levels, and then fat, very, very, very little and borderline non-insulogenic. So yeah, so it is you know possible if we're, if we're eating a very, very high protein, low carb diet, we're actually going to be generating you know, some of that insulin output and, and potentially you know, moving down that, that pathway of, of insulin resistance. And you can imagine then if, you, so if you're focusing on low carb, you know, high protein, and let's say you are maybe a little bit insulin resistant, eating some carbohydrates then might actually show you like a higher, a higher glucose level than you might imagine because you're on a low carb diet. So, so it's pretty interesting and, you know, definitely more research needs to be done in this area, but yeah, definitely would, would put a plug in for people asking their physicians to, to test this. It's, it's, it's one of the most valuable pieces of information that we can get from a standard lab in my opinion. Yeah. We talk about this a lot in the intermittent fasting podcast about, you know, testing insulin. And we just think it's really sad that it's not on a standard lab test. Yeah. But that's a whole nother topic. You're speaking about the the spikes and you mentioned like the area under the curve. I wonder this a lot. So is there something that's better or is one worse? Because oftentimes we are told or it's suggested to have meals that lead to a slower, longer glucose response and I guess maybe lower compared to like, you know, a spike that goes up and comes down shortly or quickly. Is that okay? Like, so like say a person eats a meal and it spikes high, but then it goes down pretty fast and then they're back to baseline compared to like, it spikes a little bit. It doesn't go quite as high, but then it's actually, then their blood sugar though is elevated for longer, but lower. Is one of those more beneficial or better? Do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, absolutely. So well, a couple of things it brings up. One is just this general discussion of, of area under the curve. And I, I know your, your listeners like know a lot about metabolic health. So I, you know, normally don't get into this concept because it's a little bit nuanced, but I think it's actually really important to think about. So basically if you have a continuous glucose monitor, you can imagine like it's picking up data points every five minutes or so, and you're going to eat something. And over the course of the next two hours, you're going to build this like bell curve essentially of what happened to your glucose after that. 
And if you shaded in everything under that curve and just like shaded that in, that's going to be some area. And you can imagine if you, you've got a couple different scenarios that could happen. You could go straight up and straight down like a, like a super sharp peak. And you know, that area under the curve is going to be like, you know, medium, like you're going to, it's going to be not super long in the time dimension, but it's going to be high. Then you could have a really high peak that lasts for like an hour and a half. So that's a much wider curve. That's going to have a much greater area under the curve. Then you could have like a really low carb meal that like barely spikes you and comes right back down. That's going to be like a virtually negligible area under the curve, like teeny little spike comes right back down. And then you could have, you know, more of like a sustained carb that's like a low spike, but like it lasts for maybe an hour and a half or so and then comes back down. And that's going to be like a medium area of the curve. So you said that's so much better than me. That was perfect. <laughs> no, no, like it's just that's kind of the way I think about it as like exposure to glucose. Like how much exposure is our body having to this? Is it having a lot for a long time or a little for a short period of time? And Certainly, I think the one that's best for health is going to be that little spike for a very short amount of time. So basically no spike, like a, just a, a little gentle up, maybe 5, 10 points after a meal, 5, 10 you know, milligrams per deciliter, and then comes back down within like an hour and a half. And so very little exposure of the body to glucose and probably very little exposure to insulin as well versus like the worst case scenario, which is it goes way up and it stays up for like an hour and a half and then comes back down. That's just going to be like a lot of glucose exposure to the tissues and a lot of insulin exposure. But then there's that question of the high peak that comes right back down. And my feeling is that that is actually problematic, even though it's recovering quickly. And so this is like, for instance, you have a donut and a piece of cake and you know, you've had very little protein or fat. You're just eating like straight, simple carbs. And you go up to maybe like your, let's say you're starting at 80 milligrams or deciliter before that food. And then you go up to like 170, 180, you know, go up like a hundred points and then come, you know, but you've got a good insulin sensitivity and good insulin response. So you come right back down. Well, the problem with that is that one, you have just like slammed your pancreas. You have made your pancreas do so much work and just put out so much insulin to like soak all that back up really quickly. So that's an insult to your body. You're like throwing that all on the cells and they have to respond to it and clear all that. And that's a lot of work. What also can happen when you have that big insulin surge is that you can overshoot. You can basically suck up too much glucose into the cells and have that episode of reactive hypoglycemia. So this is where you actually overshoot your baseline and go lower than you were before the meal. And reactive hypoglycemia is, is problematic for a few reasons. Like it's been associated with, you know, that post-meal slump feeling. So like having to go take a nap after a meal, sort of brain fog and also anxiety, like mood lability. So you, so there, there's been, you know, very small observational studies that have been published about people who had generalized anxiety disorder. And when they moved their diet to one where it was less spiky and less glucose spikes and much more stable glucose levels, the anxiety really improved. And you know, that's, that's not surprising. Like if you're putting your body on a glucose roller coaster, you may also have energy, mood, cognitive roller coaster going on. And what I love about continuous biofeedback and why I think it's really the future of medicine is that right now we, we may have a meal, like we may eat a donut in the morning because someone brought them to the office, you know, and had them in the workroom. We eat a donut. And then a couple hours later, we don't feel great. We feel maybe a little bit jittery. We maybe feel a little bit tired, maybe feel a little bit anxious. And you have no idea what to attribute that to. You're like, is this because I didn't get good sleep last night? Is it because I just read out a stressful email? Is it because I ate the donut? 
Is it, you know, what is it just my personality? Like, what is it? And so it's very hard to make a change if you can't attribute the cause. But if you have the glucose monitor, you can say like, okay, this is how I feel. This is what happened to my data. It went to 170 and then crashed down to 55. And this is what I did. I ate the donut. And then all of a sudden, it's like not a mystery anymore. We have this whole new enhanced body awareness that's basically biofeedback informed. And we can start to like close the loop, attribute correctly, and then make changes. And that's really, I think, what we've been missing. So it's been so much like trial and error with nutrition and lifestyle of like, well, maybe I'll tweak this. I'll get off caffeine. You know, I'll sleep a little bit more. I'll, I'll you know, maybe try and avoid sweets. But to just have that trifecta of like action, data, and subjective experience and be able to link those three things together. I think that's just revolutionary for like making sustained, efficient behavior change. And, you know, just something we haven't really been able to, to do before in the nutrition realm. So I'm pretty excited about, about that and, you know, the future of, you know, biofeedback informed diets. It's such an empowering tool, especially if you're trying to figure out what foods work for you. I wish I had like had one of these for like the past 10 years. But in any case, like I said, I originally quote cleaned up my diet when I went low carb and didn't really struggle with like blood sugar issues. And then I adopted like a paleo diet and I went actually pretty high carb, lower fat, high protein, but with intermittent fasting, I felt like I had really good (laughs) blood sugar regulation, went low carb again, and it was still pretty good. But now I keep trying to like bring back carbs and I just feel like it's not working for me. Like I like, and this was before wearing the CGM, just intuitively, I, I feel like my blood sugar is not staying stable and I get like hungry. And so when I first got put on the levels, it was when I was in my, one of my experiments of trying to bring back the carbs again. And I, I didn't really like what I was seeing on, on the CGM. Like, like I said, my, my fasting blood sugar was like in the nineties or even like a hundred. And I was like, Oh no. And so I, I decided to try going back low carb while I had on the levels and everything like really normalized a lot, which, which is kind of a bummer for me, but because I'm trying to bring back carbs, but I think having this as a tool, cause like without it, it's not that it's a shot in the dark, but when you don't have that 24 picture, it, like you said, it's hard to know like what's what, but when you have a 24 hour monitoring, you can literally see how you're reacting to foods. So, I mean, it's, I think, especially for people trying to figure out like the macros or the foods that work for them, that it's just ridiculously empowering. I would just jump in. I would say, you know, one thing that might be fun to experiment with is really trying to figure out what carbohydrates do work for you, because this is what's been so fascinating and really motivated me to really work on this. And the personalization aspect is that, and I'm sure you know this, but like each person, you know, will respond to different carbohydrates differently in terms of how much their, their glucose elevates. And there was this great study like five years ago out of the Weissman Institute in Israel that, that put called personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses and basically put glucose monitors on like a bunch of non-diabetic individuals and then gave them all standardized carbohydrate meals, the same carbs for each of them and saw that like everyone responded differently to the same, the exact same meal. Some people didn't spike at all. Other people spiked hugely. And then they looked at like what factors were, could predict how someone was going to respond to this, this carbohydrate load. And they identified things like microbiome and anthropomorphic features. So like, you know, body type and how much sleep people had gotten. So it could be interesting to experiment a little bit with like all these other levers other than just the carb alone that can mitigate a glucose spike. So let's say, you know, a sweet potato, fairly high carb food. Like for me, that spikes my glucose like 
highly. So how I would approach that using levels is, you know, take that carb that's not working for me and start doing the modification. So pair it with fat or protein, you know, both of which are known to mitigate a glucose spike. So, you know, adding tahini or an almond butter sauce or chia seeds and flax that have fiber and fat and like, see if that blunts the spike a little, you know, and then the second thing would be like looking at food timing. So like if I eat it late at night, I'm going to likely have a much higher glucose response than if I ate it in the morning, because later at night we have melatonin release, which impacts our ability to secrete insulin. And so we might actually see bigger spikes with the exact same food later at night than earlier in the day. And then experimenting with like the other lifestyle modifiers. So like, what if I eat that thing on a day that I did a high intensity interval training workout in the morning, and I know I'm going to be more insulin sensitive that day, or make sure I'm not eating it during a high stress day because cortisol can increase our glucose responses. And then, you know, also do it on a day that I got a lot of sleep because even one hour less of sleep can reduce our insulin sensitivity. So it's like looking at that whole toolbox of stuff that can mitigate our personal response to that exact same carb and see how to like shape the overall context for which that carb comes into the body. So that has been definitely powerful for me. I'm vegan and I eat tons and tons of carbs and am able to keep the glucose flat really at this point because of that sort of like very much like contextual approach to putting a carb in my body. So so yeah, I, I'm excited to to hear what you learn over the course of the, you know, testing it out. And, but I just, just really to say that I think there, there are, there are ways to turn the other knobs so you can still eat those foods you like, and maybe not have as much of a glucose spike. Yeah, 100%. I'm so glad you said all of that. Cause when I was doing the high carb, high protein, low fat in the past, it was, it was all fruit, all fruit carbs. And that's what I'm trying to bring back. But I did two days ago, tried rice instead. <laughs> very, very bad idea. Oh my goodness. It, it actually went up to like the 200s. I was like, okay, <laughs> we're not, we're not doing that. Um, <laughs> so the funny slash good thing is that I was like stressing a little bit about the fruit initially, but now compared to that, I'm like, okay, I think I can work in the fruit world and make this work because at least it wasn't going to like 200s. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, so much that you can learn from the tool. And I think I misspoke because I was saying that Jen, my co-host was doing the predict two study. And I said, it was a gut microbiome study, but I think just that was one part of it was they tested her microbiome. I'm pretty sure it's the follow-up to that study that you just mentioned, which was mind blowing. Things like a banana would, you know, have a huge response in somebody and do like nothing to another person. And like a cookie would be the same way. Oh yeah. And that two people like you and I, I could have, we could both eat the banana and the cookie and I could be a huge spiker on the banana and no spike on the cookie. And you could be the opposite, even though it's like, it's, it, it's just crazy. Cause it, it kind of flies in the face of the whole low glycemic diet concept where like, you know, we have this standardized chart and we should all follow it because we're all going to have the same glucose rise with these foods. And it's like, that's this really showed that, that there might be so much more to it than that. And it's sort of painful to think that there might've been people who are following these diets very strictly and did not see the progress they wanted to. And it might've been because of these underlying factors that just for whatever reason, changed the way that carbohydrate was processed in their body into glucose. And so, so that just super excites me about the future of of personalized wearables. And, you know, over time, these studies like predict and what the, you know, Aaron Segal's lab is doing at the Weizmann Institute, really looking for like, if we have big data sets in this stuff, how can we then potentially figure out these sort of, you know, types of predictive models, essentially, like if you respond this way to X, Y, and Z, this is probably actually how you're going to respond to A, B, and C, which is really exciting. 
I have a really random question. Well, not I guess it is related. With diabetes, is it true that the primary cause of the elevated blood sugar levels is actually from gluconeogenesis in the liver and not from like carbs in the diet? Yeah, I mean, gluconeogenesis is, you know, certainly one of the pathways through which we're, you know, getting glucose into the bloodstream. It's how we make glucose from other pathways. But I, I think that, you know, certainly my understanding of it is that it's, you know, a lot to do with how our body is processing exogenous glucose that comes in the body and and the underlying insulin resistance that, you know, causes us to, you know, sort of poorly respond to it. But in terms of like causes, like there are, it's so, so, so multifactorial. There are so many different aspects that go into why someone would become insulin resistant. And, you know, it's anywhere from eating like, you know, high carbohydrates over the course of years and decades and and that subsequent, you know, the constant insulin spikes and insulin resistance that develops, you know, there's lots of information now about more of an intracellular lipid accumulation theory of diabetes, whereby we're, you know, accumulating things like ceramides and diacylglycerol DAG and and other things inside the cell, which are actually causing the insulin receptor to be less responsive to the signal of glucose. There's things like micronutrient status. So, you know, there are our metabolic pathways, like what happens in the mitochondria to actually process glucose require lots of different nutrient cofactors for those processes like zinc and manganese, magnesium, B vitamins. And so, you know, chronic deficiency of these critical micronutrient cofactors can be involved in the pathogenesis. There's, there's of course, genetic factors as well. And then there's, you know, so many other things that can change glucose levels, the medications that we're on, you know, underlying illnesses that may raise glucose levels, chronic stress, and the chronic cortisol associated with stress that keeps glucose levels high, sleep deprivation, and that the impact of sleep deprivation on insulin sensitivity. And, you know, you can imagine over the course of decades, how much that can compound. There are just so many elements that are both intrinsic to our biology, but also environmental and our, you know, behavior based that are contributing to the development and the pathogenesis of this disease. And actually one last one that's under-recognized, but very well established at this point is environmental chemicals and their impact on our metabolic health and our endocrine system. So things like persistent organic pollutants, POPs, and nitrogen dioxide in the environment, these things can actually block some of our metabolic pathways. So everything from, you know, food, insulin, intracellular lipids, you know, liver function, micronutrients, genetics, environmental, sleep, you know, exercise, stress over the years, all those things feed into the pathogenesis of this disease. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot, it's just amazing. And and it's just really a testament to how our current world and like the world we live in right now, like it's really an uphill battle. And so, yeah, certainly my mission as a physician is to help people understand these different factors and build as many of those into our product and our software. Like how can we educate people about sleep, stress, exercise, food pairing, food timing, even micronutrients, environmental exposures all into one app that just helps people understand the comprehensive nature of metabolic health. And while food is a key driver in our metabolic outcomes, it is necessary, but not sufficient for metabolic health. You know, you have to have these other ducks in a row as well. And so that's really my mission in trying to like build a software product that cues people into all these different aspects that ultimately feed into our metabolic health. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think it's so huge. I'm recently become really obsessed with endocrine disruptors and obesogens in particular, and like all the messages and the signals that they send in our body that 
I think people don't quite realize the potency of it because, you know, oh, we're not eating it. We're not putting it in our mouth and we can't see it. It's hard to really understand the the vast impact that it can have. The gluconeogenesis thing, I heard that. I was listening to like a, I think a Peter Atia podcast all on metformin. And they were saying that, that that's where I heard that idea that with type 2 diabetes, the main issue is with the liver producing excess sugar all the time. I actually, speaking of metformin, I did not get metformin, but I did just order berberine, which has been shown to be comparable to metformin. And I'm really excited to try it with my CGM and see what happens. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious to hear that. You know, that one's been well studied clinically in the, in the diabetic population. And I'll, I'll be fascinated to hear what you, what you learn with that. And then I guess I would say one other plug for if in terms of testing out supplements, there's a really interesting supplement now on the market by Pendulum Therapeutics, which is a probiotic company that's now approved for type 2 diabetics for lowering A1C and glucose levels and has not been studied in non-diabetics, but um, first probiotic that I'm aware of on the market that's actually clinically validated for lowering glucose levels. So yeah, and in that list that I gave earlier, you know, of all the things that kind of contribute to, to to the pathogenesis of diabetes, another huge one, of course, is microbiome. And so, when you were talking about environmental chemicals, like not only can they be endocrine disrupting in their own right and directly impact enzymatic pathways critical to metabolic health and hormones, but they're also have such an impact on the microbiome. You know, what we're putting in our body, it's on our food, in our water. You know, this is going to directly impact our microbial biodiversity in the gut, which make these critical metabolic cofactors. And so, so yeah, totally with you on the, that end you know, endocrine disrupting chemical train. I think it's, it's way under talked about and really something we got to address at the societal level. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you. $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So, as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits 
The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I particularly think like our skincare and makeup is one of the worst exposures to it every single day. So that probiotic, is it like a a strain I like never heard of or is it like a specific blend of like lacto or bifidobacteria strains? Yeah, so I, when I first thought about it, I thought it was going to be like bacteroides or bifidobacterium or something like that, but it's actually, and I'm forgetting the exact strain, but I believe it's just one strain and it's been you know, clinically studied. And I'm really curious to try it even, you know, certainly it's not what it's indicated for because it's, it's for people with type two diabetes and it hasn't been studied in non-diabetics, but it'd be interesting to see if it can even move the needle in, in, you know, someone who's fairly healthy. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would have to look into that and I'll put more information in the show notes. Quick question. Cause I asked listeners for questions for this show. And one of the questions I thought was really good was she wanted to know, is a two-week monitoring period, although you said it is a month because you get two sensors, but is that enough time to, you know, learn about yourself? And during that period, that two-week or that month period, do you suggest following like your normal diet for a certain amount of time, like making changes? Like how should people best approach that, that two-week or that one-month trial period? Yeah. So I think I think one month is really the a, a perfect amount of time to do it. I certainly think doing it longer is excellent and you can you can even learn more and then and then shift into maybe like you've you've learned, you know, a ton and then you're using it more for like accountability, which is I think where I'm at, where I'm really like using it as my accountability tool. You said you've been using it how long? A, almost a year and a half. And I, st- I can't even imagine taking it off. Like not having it would be, <laughs> you feel naked. Yeah. I feel super weird without it. And I actually make, I do find myself making different decisions without it. And it also doesn't, you know, hurt that my, my team, uh, you know, we all of course share our glucose data and, and so can, you know, ride each other a little bit if we're, if we're going off course. So that accountability is, is super fun. And but I think, yeah, I think a month is a really great amount of time for for developing metabolic awareness and starting to build out your metabolic toolbox of like, what are these levers you can pull to keep your glucose more stable? And I think the best way to approach the program, which we 
we lay out, you know, in the app and in our program guide is the first week is really like exploration, eat your normal foods, eat what you love and see what happens. So like, you know, just what is what you've been eating, been doing like to your glucose. And so I think that's pretty fascinating. The first week is just like, try not to modify the diet and just eat what you normally eat and make some observations there. Then moving into like the second and third week, it's really about like experimentation. So like what happens when you've had a good night of sleep versus a bad night of sleep? What happens when you do yoga versus high intensity interval training? What happens if you add a lot of fat to your carbohydrates versus no fat? What happens if you, you know, take berberine? What happens if you take an apple cider vinegar shot before your meal, which in many studies has been shown to lower glycemic responses? Like what happens if you had cinnamon to your, to your oatmeal instead of no cinnamon, which cinnamon is shown to be an insulin synthesizer? Like try these different things. And, and also I really suggest like try, you know, walking after meals and see what that does. And that's really just like exploratory. And, and we have some challenges that we can, you know, guide people with to sort of help them create these, these experiments for themselves and really just start to see like how these other factors are impacting the response. And then fourth week, I would really move into optimization phase. So like take what you've learned from your experiences and just like try and keep it flat and stable. So that's really the time to like see how much you can move the needle with everything that you've learned. So if listeners do it for the month and how does it work if they want to keep getting more sensors? Is it starting over again? Like you still have the account. It is like the price the same. How does that work if they do want to use it indefinitely? Yeah. Yeah. So right now we're, we're really set up mostly for this one month program, but people can subscribe if they want to. And we, we, we do have a, a very large number of people who want to subscribe. The main issue there is really is price point. You know, we, the hardware right now is, is still quite expensive and, the the thing is, is that that is going to change, I think, rapidly in the next six months to 18 months. There's a lot of hardware companies coming down the pipeline and people really innovating for, for new hardware. And I think we're going to see a huge drop in the prices as this technology becomes more and more widely adopted, especially by a wider market. So as those, those prices change for hardware, it's going to be much more amenable to a subscription type product where people can use it like long term. So that's, that's the main barrier now, but if people do want to subscribe, we can do that for people for essentially it's half the cost of the first month because there's, you know, they don't have to go through the physician consultation again, and we will just essentially ship them two new sensors for the month to continue working with the app and with the program. But I think over time, we're going to see, it could be, you know, people being able to use this more for like six months, a year, as long as they want, as long as it's valuable for them, um, as the prices come down. Awesome. Kind of sounds like the trend with blood glucose strips <laughs> or um, testing ketone strips, even though this is a slightly higher price point than that. We'll have to keep our fingers crossed that it keeps dropping. So within the app, because there are different scores that it gives you, because I got a lot of questions about, you know, can the everyday person interpret the data? Like, how will we know what this all means? So what are the different scores that the app gives you? And like what user data can you input? Because I know you can like log your meals and things like that. So so just like within the, the world of the app, how does it help users to, you know, learn the, the most that they can from, from their CGM data? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of data that you're inputting, so obviously you've got the continuous glucose data stream. And then people are logging their food in the app manually. And we try to make this as easy as possible with just like a really quick photo of your food. And you can go back and, you know, annotate it later and put in the ingredients. 
And then people can import their data through Apple HealthKit or Google Fit to start getting their you know activity, sleep, heart rate data in there so that they can start correlating that with their glucose. So that's the data input. And then in terms of the interpretation, that's really what we're trying to make easy for people. So it's tough to know whether going from, you know, 80 to 126 after a meal, what is the impact of that? You know, it's it's tough to know. And so we've created two scoring systems to make it easier for people. So one is what's called the zone score and one is called the metabolic fitness score. So the zone score is a score that's graded um, from zero to 10 and basically tells you how good or bad your meal was metabolically for you. So a 10 is like a perfect score and a zero is, you know, a failing grade. This takes into account a lot of different aspects of the response to the meal. So things like how long were you elevated? How high did you go? How far did you rise from baseline? Where did you start out? Like what was your what was your glucose before you started? And just taking into account a lot of these different factors that we know are important for health and then turning them into like one very simple composite metric with the zone score. And what's really cool about the zone score is that it doesn't just take into account the food you ate, but also anything that you did around that meal. So clearly if you eat a meal and then take a walk, both of those things are going to impact the glucose outcome. So it's not just a meal score. It's actually what happened in that, in that zone. And then there's some neat comparison features where you can compare zones. So you could do you know, oatmeal followed by a 30 minute walk. And that zone score may have gotten like a seven and then oatmeal followed by no walk. And that zone score may have gotten a five. And then you could do like oatmeal followed by gave a really stressful talk to my company, like high stress. And that may have gotten a two. And then you can graph those really nicely to basically show your, you know, show, okay, so this plus walk was the best, this plus no walk was worse, and this plus stress was absolutely the worst. So that starts helping people guide them towards that metabolic toolbox and what metabolic awareness. Then the metabolic fitness score is a longer term metric. So this is actually looking at your whole day and giving you a percentage out of 100 of like where where you stand metabolically. So this is taking into account, you know, the, the more longer term metrics throughout the day, like how many spikes did you have? What, you know, which is a, a term called glycemic variability. What were your averages throughout the day? You know, how much glucose exposure basically did you have? How quickly did you recover from, you know, your glucose spikes? And, and that's more of that, that longer term metric that tells you a little bit more about like where you're standing, you know, not just how, what, what a meal did to you, but like how you might be standing like overall in your meta- metabolic health. And so those are the two main scores we use to try and really make it easy for people to understand. So is that metabolic score, is it based on what you were saying earlier in the show about the ranges of like 70 to 120 and like 92% of the population being at certain amount? What is it based on? So our sort of optimal range that we tell people in the app is 70 to 110. So the more people stay within that range, the closer they're going to be to hundred on their metabolic fitness score. But even within 70 to 110, people can be super stable and low, or they can be like super up and down. So you still might not be 100% on your metabolic fitness score if you're like going up and down all the time, even within the healthiest range. So, you know, or might people might be living in the higher end of that range versus the lower end of that range. So all of those things are taken into account to give this, this score. And it's a score that's under, you know, constant evolution. We are, you know, growing our, our, you know, user base, we're in a beta program right now. We've had about a thousand people go through the program, but certainly refining the score as we learn more from the data. So. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about 
you know, apps <laughs> that they can constantly be updating and constantly making them, you know, adjusting from, you know, user data and all of that. That's actually one thing. Do you anticipate having an update? Because right now, well, I guess it might be different too if you use the other CGM. That is it Dexcom? Dexcom, yeah. Dexcom. Because right now it's like you scan with the Freestyle Libra app and then it pulls the information to levels. Do you anticipate making it a one-stop shop with like direct from the levels app? Yes, that is definitely the goal. And we're, you know, we're moving in that direction as rapidly as we can. I have some other just random rapid fire questions. I know we're running up on time. So one is, do you think there will be a development? Because right now, at least with the Freestyle Libra, and I don't know how the Dexcom, how often you have to scan it, but it stores data for eight hours. So you do have to scan at least every eight hours if you want to have the full picture. Do you think they'll make updates in the future where it'll store 24 hours? Actually, what is so exciting is that so both companies, Abbott and Dexcom, now made Bluetooth sensors. So these are going to actually send the data without having to scan it with your smartphone, which means that that eight hours is going to become obsolete because it's going to be sending the data all the time. So the Abbott just released what's called Freestyle Libre 2. It was just FDA approved and is making its way to pharmacies in the US. And that is Bluetooth. And so it's going to send every 15 minutes that data to the phone. And then the Dexcom G6, which is the, the current model that's widely used from Dexcom right now, is already Bluetooth enabled. So that's sending the data every five minutes to your phone. So that's very, very exciting because, you know, it, it can be tough sometimes to remember to scan every eight hours. You know, usually in the beginning of the program, people are scanning like every five minutes and, you know, you just want to see that data constantly. But with the Bluetooth capability, it's just coming automatically, no scanning required. And you're going to have that higher fidelity data stream as well, because there's going to be no gaps. So yeah, and just to clarify for people who are listening, so with the non-Bluetooth enabled older sensors, you have to hold up your phone to the sensor to transmit the data. It's called NFC, uh, near field communication. So you actually have to like have it close by. And it, since the sensor only stores eight hours of data, if you like wait nine hours to scan, you might lose an hour of data. So that technology has just been advancing rapidly. And so we're excited about the Dexcom offering coming up very, very soon with us, meaning that we're going to be able to you know, prescribe and send Dexcoms to individuals because you've got that Bluetooth capability. And you also have a really nice feature on the Dexcom that gets back to the accuracy question, which is a calibration feature so you can do a finger prick at home and actually calibrate your sensor to make sure they're as accurate as possible. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because right now with the eight hours, because I usually sleep longer than eight hours. So it's like I, I like wake up in the middle of the night and scan, which is messes with my, my um, I don't have my blue light blocking glasses on in the middle of the night. So I know my listeners are going to want to know, is the Bluetooth a problem with EMFs? Is there an option still to do it the old school way? That is such a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Like if you can disable the Bluetooth and do near field communication, I'll look into that. Or if it's only Bluetooth, like can it be put into maybe like airplane mode? Like I see, yeah. Like not have it transmitting and then just downloading all the data every certain, you know, I don't know. And I will, I, I got to look into that. That's a great question. Because I know <laughs> they're going to want to know. <laughs> and then, oh, okay. So there's one like sort of, larger general question that I meant to ask way earlier, but could you just briefly explain the difference between blood glucose levels, HbA1c and fructosamine, which I feel like doctors don't usually test fructosamine, but it seems that apparently that might be the perhaps more accurate indicator of your blood sugar load. 
So blood glucose values is just like you can imagine, like the the level of circulating glucose in your circulatory system. You know, when you eat carbohydrates, glucose is you digest the carbohydrates and it it enters through your gut lining into the bloodstream and you get this this glucose surge. And that glucose level, the body tries to keep it like in a very stable range as much as it can. It doesn't want it to get too low. It doesn't want it to get too high. And we really need it to stay within a fairly narrow range for just optimal functioning of the body. And then we talked earlier about the the different ranges for glucose levels. And, you know, the, the ones that you're going to hear about most clinically is like under 100 milligrams per deciliter for a fasting glucose being considered quote unquote, non-diabetic normal. So, so that's, that's just circulating glucose. Hemoglobin A1C is a longer term assessment of your average glucose levels. So this is actually taking blood and they can test in a lab. This can't be done at home, but can be done in a lab. How much of the hemoglobin in your red blood cells has sugar stuck to it? So that's glycated hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is, you know, the oxygen carrying molecule in the red blood cells. And since red blood cells last about 90 days in the bloodstream before they're recycled, this can tell us essentially a 90-day average of our glucose levels, which is in some ways helpful because, you know, you can get a sense of like generally where your average glucose levels were. But what it doesn't tell us is how much like ups and downs you had. So it totally misses like the whole glycemic variability part of things. And, you know, your average glucose might've been 110 throughout the month, 110 milligrams per deciliter, which might, you know, lead to a certain A1C level. But is that because you stayed right at 110 the whole time? Or is that because you were going up to 150 and crashing to 60 and 70 all throughout the month? And those two things are going to be very different health, you know, statuses. You don't want that up and down swing. You want the stability. So, so it's a helpful metrics or sort of general long-term averages for your glucose, but, but missing quite a bit in terms of the granularity of the ups and downs. And of course, missing the biofeedback element, because it's not going to help you really figure out what in your diet was the thing that was the problem. And then serum fructosamine is kind of similar to hemoglobin C in the sense that it's a glycated protein that can also enable assessment of long-term glycemic control in patients with diabetes. And this is measured in relation to serum albumin levels because reduction in serum albumin will lower a fructosamine value. So that's a test that's like not frequently used, but I I, I have seen very, very few doctors order this test. Hemoglobin A1C is much, much more sort of mainstream, I'd say. I read it was potentially more beneficial because like hemoglobin A1C, there could be false I don't know, it could be a false positive or false negative. Like sometimes people on lower carb diets, perhaps their red blood cells were living longer. So they were showing higher levels of glycation, but it was because they weren't dying earlier. And so glucosamine might be more appropriate. There's a lot of issues with hemoglobin A1C. One is like just you know, the miss, missing sort of the, the variability component. It's just really telling you more averages. And the other is what you just said, which is that people have a lot of variability in their red blood cell lifetimes. It can be 90 days is about on average, but it could be 90 to 120 days. And hemoglobin C tends to pick up more preferentially what the most recent glucose was. So like closer to the time of the test. So, you know, it might be skewed higher or lower based on what happened really close to the test and not necessarily be like the best snapshot of the full picture. So 
I think we're going to definitely move into a world where dynamic tests, like wearing a CGM for a week, actually will end up becoming diagnostic tools because you can just get so, so much more information about someone's just like baseline metabolic health based on seeing what's happening to the glucose over time, like what their one week average is, what what their area under the curve is after their meals. And this is stuff that's really interesting. Um, Michael Schneider, the head of genetics at Stanford, he has published a paper a year or two ago called Glucotypes, which was like different types of people basically based on their continuous glucose monitoring curve and their risk for like future future issues. So I think we are hopefully going to see a movement towards tests like that that are that are more dynamic and more accurate in terms of predicting the future for people. But for now what we've got is A1C, fructosamine which is much much less used, fasting glucose and then a, the results of an oral glucose tolerance test which is like I mentioned before the chugging the glucose and then looking at the the 75 grams of glucose, and then looking at the blood glucose at 30 minutes, an hour, and two hours after that. And those three things, fasting, A1C, and oral glucose tolerance tests are the three standardized criteria for diagnosing diabetes in the US. Yeah, that was actually a question from a listener. She wanted to know if there was the potential that in the future, instead of an oral glucose test, maybe for pregnant women, if they could do CGMs, do you think that might might it all be in the future of like the medical system? I very much hope so. And it's something that I'm personally, you know, pushing for because one, I think especially with gestational diabetes, you know, diagnostics, like we probably should not be having pregnant women chug 75 grams of glucose with some of them have like artificial dyes in them. And it's just, it's, it's just yucky, but also it's just, it's just a single, you know, snapshot. Like it, it could be different on a Monday versus a Tuesday versus a Wednesday based on hormone levels and how much sleep they got and how much stress they had in the parking lot before the test. And so it's just, you know, I don't think it's probably capturing all the nuances of someone's current health. And I would really love to see us to be able to clinically validate the results you're seeing on a CGM and how those correlate with these other diagnostic tests. So we can start moving towards like this more nuanced diagnostics with CGM. I think it would be really positive for people. That's so exciting. Yeah. She literally said, can MDs please petition insurance companies with this rationale? I'm on it. I'm on it. And and you can imagine like, yeah, for, for like the, the average person walking around with maybe a normal A1C, like totally normal, their doctor says they're normal, but then they would put on a CGM and their doctor might see huge variability and like big spikes after meals, but, but they just haven't gotten to that point where they've, the insulin resistance has tipped over into just like really high average glucose levels. But like that person, you could potentially capture them and, and, and find out that they're at risk so much earlier than just waiting for their A1C or their fasting glucose to rise. So what I'm most interested in, like, how can we capture more of the at-risk population through these other aspects of glucose that we know are clinically important, like glycemic variability and AUC that we're just ignoring right now. And maybe we could intervene so much earlier for these people who are certainly on the, on the spectrum of moving in the wrong direction of metabolic health, but their lab tests that we standardly order just aren't showing it yet. Yeah, this is so incredible. And I know like, you know, all of that is like on the the doctor petitioning side of things. But I think what you're doing, bringing it into like the popular vernacular, like making it (laughs) a thing, I think is so huge for the movement of making forward progress just in general on the health side of things with patients, as well as the general public like you're doing. So, so thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your company. I'm so grateful. This conversation was incredible, really, really amazing. And so right now levels is on a wait list, which is it still like around 40,000 or so? 
It is. Yes. And you know, so right now you can sign up for the waitlist on the website, levelshealth.com and we're in a closed beta program. So we're working through the waitlist as quickly as we can. But yeah, we, uh, we're hoping to, you know, just really grow and scale our operations in the next coming months so that we can, we can just get everyone access to this product who wants it. So the show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash levels. But if you are interested in getting on board with this, you can go to melanieavalon.com slash levels CGM. And that will actually, I think it'll like put you to the, the front of the wait list. Yeah. So it lets you skip the 40,000 person wait list. Very exciting. Yeah. So as opposed to waiting a long time, you can get to the front of the line. So excited to do that for your listeners. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. And I know my listeners will as well. And so that brings me to the last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast, which relates to that. And it's just because I'm realizing every single day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I am so grateful that I actually got to spend the last five weeks. um, I live in Portland, Oregon, but I got to spend the last five weeks in rural Pennsylvania in Honesdale with my partner's family. We actually left Oregon because of the wildfire smoke last month and flew out there. And it was just so wonderful and peaceful that we stayed for five weeks. <laughs> so his poor family, but it was, it was really, I live really in an urban environment here in Portland. And I was in a cabin looking out over a valley of leaves changing. And it really helped me incorporate health behaviors, you know, into my daily life in, in a way that was, I think even better than I do here in Portland. So I was sleeping on a sleeping porch. So I was actually breathing fresh air all night. I woke up to seeing leaves. I woke up to the sunshine and could not look at my phone for the first half hour of the day. Cause I was just like, there's so much beauty to see. I was able to like, you know, brush my teeth standing outside, looking at the leaves and like just everything on the property, like you kind of have to walk a lot more. And so I was moving a lot more throughout the day. I was, you know, less artificial light sleeping with this fresh air. I also just read that book. You mentioned this on one of your previous episodes, the James Nestor book, Breath. And I loved it. So I was doing a lot of the breath stuff while sleeping outside. And I think it like totally changed my dreams. And like, I was dreaming more. And like, it just was kind of like everything related to stress, sleep, exercise, and food. They're very, very healthy, have a beautiful organic garden in their house. Like it was just like, everything was, and I was working remotely from there, from this deck being outside. So like all aspects of just sort of like health behaviors were just easy. And I was also just around family, which was wonderful, like just people that were just so loving. And so it just was such a reminder of like how much our environment shapes our health and, you know, to really just like seek out environments that are going to encourage your best self and your best behaviors for doing those behaviors every day that are going to generate, you know, the conditions in the body that are associated with feeling great and doing good work. And so I'm just so grateful for that time. Sorry, long answer to that, but it was just, it was really special. And I, I, I really made me reflect on, on how much our, our, our lived environment and our surroundings like have an impact on, on the way we live. Oh, I love it so much. That's why I love asking that question at the end. I think it's like my favorite question every episode, because it's just so wonderful to hear and just puts a smile on my face and so, so important. So So thank you. This has been so amazing. I can't wait to share it. My listeners are going to love it. Friends, get a CGM. It's going to blow you away what you can learn. And I'm really excited to see the updates in the future and where this all goes because thank you. You're doing really incredible work. So thank you. 
Thank you, Melanie. You are also doing incredible work and it was so great to chat with you. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Casey. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.